Well, good morning, everyone, and welcome to the final day of the Adelaide Writers' Week for 2022. On this beautiful, beautiful March morning, here on the banks of the Karawira Parry, the river of the Red Gum Forest. And what's interesting about the Karawira Parry is that I'm told by Uncle Lewis O'Brien, this actually would have been the place where for tens of thousands of years, Ghana people would gather and share their wisdom and tell their stories. And so it's very apt for us this morning to feel that we are part of that proximity to the Karawira Parry. I should say known since 1836 as the River Torrens. Uh, and at the same time, not only had that connection physically with the Ghana people, but also spiritually. And we acknowledge their presence spiritually as well as physically here and acknowledge their elders past, present and emerging. My name is Rick Saar and it's my very, very great pleasure to welcome you here. Just a couple of housekeeping matters before we finish. Please turn your phones to silent. If you're tweeting or Instagramming, the hashtag is hash ADLWW, that is Adelaide Writers Week. Please support our authors. And we have actually got our authors here this morning <coughs> as we develop their particular book, How the Fear of Death Shaped Human Society. So there'll be a book signing afterwards. Please support them by getting a copy of that book. And finally, be COVID safe during the day while you're here. Follow the messages on the screen and please follow any directions from our wonderful marshals who you will see typically in bright green t-shirts. So with those formalities out of the way, let me introduce our speakers today. I've been around Writers Week for a long, long time and I think this is the first father and daughter session in the history of Writers Week. I stand corrected, uh, but I don't know of any other. As we discuss the Menzies monumental tome, Mortals, How the Fear of Death Shaped Human Society. I loved it. Now, we're not allowed to have favourites in terms of books we review, but this is one of my favourites. Rachel completed her doctoral degree in psychology at the University of Sydney in 2020 and currently continues a postgraduate fellowship there. Ross is professor in the Graduate School of Health at University of Technology, Sydney, and recently became the founding director of the newly formed World Confederation of Cognitive and Behavioural Therapies. Therapies. <laughs> Please welcome Ross and Rachel. Rachel, let me start with you. You quote someone um, called Caitlin Doherty, and I'm sure you'll correct me with the pronunciation in due course, uh, in your book. Here's what she says about the fear of death, and I quote her. Overcoming our fears and wild misconceptions about death will be no small task, but we shouldn't forget how quickly other cultural prejudices, racism, sexism, homophobia, have begun to topple in the recent past. It's high time death had its own moment of truth. Tell us about that quote. So, Caitlin Doherty, for those of you who don't know her, is a mortician in the United States, and she coined the term the death positive, or she coined the term death positive. She wondered, why do we have a sex positive movement but not a death positive movement? And so she is really one of the big figures in what's now referred to as the death positive movement, which is a push to normalise death, break down taboos around death. And she gives some examples there of other issues that for a long time in human history have been considered sort of fringe issues. So the women's rights movement, the gay rights movement, making the point that these were issues that humans have shied away from dealing with for a long time <laughs> 
but once they have started to deal with these issues, it's been for the betterment of society. And death is one of those issues that a lot of people don't like to talk about as a society, particularly in Western societies. We're not very good at talking about death or thinking about death, uh, and there's a huge detriment to that. So the death positive movement is really pushing us to talk about death, bring it out into the light, the same way that we've successfully done with many of these other issues across human history. Now, we're going to spend 45 minutes this morning talking about this topic and returning to that same theme about how better to reconceptualise death, talk about death, think about death. But I want Ross to come to the thesis of the book that somehow or other this fear of death has shaped human history. Can you take us through that? Yeah. Um, if you look at human history, the, the recorded human history, Death is there from the earliest stories that we've written. The oldest story, the Epic of Gilgamesh, is a story about a man who couldn't cope with his dear friend's death and goes searching for immortality. Our oldest buildings, the pyramids, are essentially tombs and, and a way to get to an afterlife. Death has shaped culture. It's given birth to religions. It's shaped the arts. It's, it's dominated us. And the reason is, quite si simply, that... In the evolution of, of the human species, we come with the curse of a reflective consciousness. Everyone in this audience can move backward and forward in time. If I ask you to remember what you were doing yesterday, you can do it. If I ask you to remember significant events from a year, two years, five years ago, you can do it. But you can also go forward in time. You can tell me about what's coming up for you next year, perhaps, or the year after, or what you plan. And from the age, between three and nine years of age, you come to understand where you ultimately end up. You end up dead. So a mature understanding of death occurs by the ninth year of life, and the rest of life has to be lived grappling with that. We know we're going to the grave. And human society and history has been shaped by that, by, by humans grappling with that. You mentioned uh, a number of examples where, in fact, people thinking about immortality become rather vicious. So we're yeah. not necessarily lovey-dovey about this. What do you mean by that? We're not at our best <laughs> when, we're, when we're, our mortality's on the line. And humans will do horrible things to each other uh, if they believe it's in the interests of cheating death or gaining immortality. And I, we could give many examples. I'll give one simple one. Uh, the Aztecs, you may know, would sacrifice... Uh, by the priest cutting the still-beating heart uh, out of uh, the, the human sacrifice, uh, throwing the dead body from the top of the uh, pyramid temple structure. They didn't do this once or twice a year to appease the gods. Uh, they did it up to 20,000 times a year. They did it to slaves. They did it to prisoners of war. They also did it to volunteers... Now, you might wonder, why would you possibly <laughs> volunteer to have your still-beating heart sliced out of your chest? Because it gave you the promise of a better immortality. People would die to do this, as martyrs might today. So we can be very vicious to each other. Um, the pandemic's given us examples of that. At the opening of the... Uh, when the pandemic first hit... The pandemic's a very interesting example mm. uh, because here it was something that came along that could kill you and kill you quick. 
and that tension between humans wishing to live on but knowing they could die and they could potentially die quick led to a lot of aggression in the community, a lot of hatred to outgroups. Uh, anyone, certainly in Sydney, where we're from, people flying in at the beginning of the pandemic uh, with an Asian appearance were given a very rough time. Uh, so a lot of aggression, a lot of violence, and we could give many other examples. Rachel Ross has mentioned uh, about the Aztecs and other uh, cultural and religious uh, denials or, uh, or, or practices in the face of death. And I should say, and I'll tell the audience here, that religion doesn't fare particularly well in this book. As one can imagine, there have been some... Uh, and in fact, you list those dreadful occasions where uh, religions have actually acted rather poorly. But some two-thirds of the society, we're told by the census, have some form of religious belief. And a lot of those religious beliefs are premised on the idea that there's a better afterlife. And anyone has to just go through the obituaries in the newspaper to see something like, this little angel will be in heaven. And it makes people feel better about death. How do you reconcile that paradox? Yeah, so... We, I mean, we would agree that for, for some people the idea of being reunited with loved ones in an afterlife does offer comfort, that it might make grief easier, it might make the possibility of their own death easier to deal with. And religion offers many people a lot of benefits, particularly on an individual level, where they might feel a sense of connection with community, more community involvement... They might find more meaning in what they're doing if, if there's a community behind that. So we're certainly not trying to invalidate or, or invalidate people's beliefs or tell people what they should or shouldn't believe. That being said, the one thing that religions all have in common is offering some kind of solution to the problem of death. And interestingly, you would think intuitively that people who think I'm, I'm going to be reunited with loved ones in an afterlife these people should be the least fearful of death of any group. But interestingly, that's not the case. When you look at the data, the attitude towards death that's associated with the best outcomes in terms of psychological well-being as you're dying, but also psychological well-being for physically healthy people, the best attitude, the most effective attitude, seems to be what's called neutral acceptance of death. So I accept death because it's a natural part of life. It's neither good nor bad. I neither fear death nor welcome it. And this is an attitude towards death that is irrespective of any particular religious belief. So people who have that type of attitude towards death seem to be psychologically happier with the idea of death, even more so than people who accept death because they see it as a gateway to an afterlife or being reunited with loved ones. So clearly for some people on a personal level, there is comfort in that idea. But when we look, on the, when we look at the data, the, the most effective attitude seems to just be acceptance of death regardless of religious belief. So personally, religion clearly offers some people benefits. But I think when we look on a societal level, the Aztecs would be one example from history, but there would be countless examples of the millions of people who have died across history as a result of religious conflicts, one set of religious beliefs clashing with another set of religious beliefs. You know, the Crusades would be one famous example of that, where Christians were told, if you kill Muslims, you'll be absolved of your sins, you'll be guaranteed a ticket to heaven, essentially. So 
this is really the issue we take with religion in the book, that when you look across human history, millions and millions of people have died as a result of these conflicts, often in the pursuit of some, some type of immortality because they're doing what their religion tells them to do. Now, both of you are uh, psychologists and you write from the psychological perspective. And for those of you who are studying psychology, this book is a, uh, a primer in how to do psychological experiments. There's a lot of material that comes from the literature in the last 20 or 30 years. One of the terms that I wasn't familiar with until I started reading the book, Ross, was this thing called terror management theory and the way that we respond to the fear of death by doing whatever boosts our self-image, no matter the physical cost. What do you mean by that? Yeah, terror management theory is a, a, a very dominant uh, theory in social psychology. It has over 300 experiments, laboratory experiments su supporting it. Basically, it says that uh, in the face of death, as I said, by the age of nine, we come to know we're going to die. Uh, at some point, we're going to die. We're, and that's in tension with our deep desire to live, so that we live in some tension we want to live on, uh, yet we know we can die and we could die at any moment. Uh, terror management theory explores how humans deal with that and essentially argues that we do one of two things. We either go for a solution of literal immortality, we just deny death, uh, and the main way we achieve that is through religious belief. We say, well, it's not true. It's not true. Uh, I, I've, I've uh, heard about this thing called death, but I'm saying it ain't happening. Uh, we deny and we go for literal immortality. The alternative is to, to go for what's called a, a symbolic or a virtual immortality. Uh, and we achieve that by living a life that our culture uh, would tell us is a, a life well lived so that we shine among the populace that we grew up with, we're seen as an exemplar of our peers and our communities, a success story that will be remembered after our death. So we seek sort of a, uh, a symbolic immortality, will be talked about, will continue to be talked about. And so we, we do things that our culture tells us uh, are, are rewarded. The most obvious example uh, would be in, in Western culture in general at the moment. We live in a very material world and so we seek to buy more and, and shinier toys and consume more. Laboratory studies have demonstrated this and the way, way we do this is very interesting. We give subtle reminders of death to half of the participants in a study but not the other half. So, so we, we trick you in what the, the experiment's about. We might have a hundred questions on a questionnaire and it might say, do you prefer French food or Italian food? Do you like rugby league or AFL? Do you like... We have all these questions. And in, scattered in there might be a couple of questions on death. Would you rather be buried or cremated when you die? That's called a death prime. We've reminded one group about death, the other group don't get those questions. No death reminder. And then we see what happens to their behaviour? Is there any difference in the lab in those two groups? And what's been shown many times is behaviour changes. If you've been reminded of death, you'll seek to purchase more. And if you're given an opportunity to purchase high-status goods, you'll say they're better later in the lab session. You'll, you'll go for the, 
the Versace products, uh, not the plain labels, because you're trying to boost your self-esteem. So the research is fascinating. Terror management theory is, a, is really a very rich area of research that's showing us what humans do when they're reminded of death. Ross, I think you just lost 500 participants. <laughs> uh, for your next study, they won't trust you at all. Yeah. In relation to, uh... yeah. We're always tricking people. We're always tricking people. Rachel, I want to put another paradox to you. We often talk about the value and we, and we tend to uh, fate uh, people who are risk-takers and yet a person who's a risk-taker is obviously dicing with death. Uh, how do you explain risk-taking in our communities when people are most fearful of death? It's a really good question because intuitively, like you said, we would think the idea that people are desperately trying to fight death and yet they're doing these risky things, those seem to be completely opposing things. Uh, but if you think about it from that terror management theory perspective, it makes a lot of sense. So if people are... So one big way that people try and overcome the fear of death is unconsciously do things that make them feel good about themselves. So they'll try and bolster their self-esteem. If one person's method of bolstering their self-esteem is doing an activity that has some risk to it, they will still seek to do that activity after they've been primed for death. So, for example, if, um, if you get a lot of self-esteem from tanning in the sun, from spending a lot of time making your skin bronzed, if that makes you feel attractive and good about yourself, then when in the laboratory you're given a subtle reminder of death, you'll actually want to spend more time tanning. You'll be less interested in purchasing sunscreen or wide-brimmed hats. You'll want to spend more time in the sun. Even though you know rationally that's actually going to increase your risk of skin cancer, because that's your method of feeling good about yourself, that's what you'll do. And we know this from other studies. We know uh, young men, for example, who, who say that they, their self-esteem is tied into speeding, driving in a risky way, will drive more quickly after being primed with death. Mm. And the same for smoking. For people who uh, smoking cigarettes is tied up with their self-esteem, they'll want to smoke more. And this has really big implications for the way we deal with these kind of problems like smoking, cancer, um, speeding on our roads. Because if you think of the way we try and deter people from these behaviours, typically we do that by reminding them of death. We have packets of cigarettes covered in warnings about the fact that you're going to die. For people who get their self-esteem from smoking, this just makes them smoke more. And the same for speeding campaigns. One example of a, a campaign that dealt with this in a really nice way was the, the Pinky campaign. For those of you who remember the anti-speeding campaign where it's a young man driving and you see people on the side of the road going like this and his mates in the back of the car going like this and the tagline is speeding no one thinks big of you. That was a great campaign because it's saying, it's, it's demeaning, it's saying it's not cool to speed, everyone thinks you're a loser and it's a great example of a campaign which doesn't mention death at all, doesn't prime death and is trying to show young men that it's not cool to speed, don't do it. So those sorts of campaigns are much more in line with what we know about in terms of what is effective for changing behaviour and how reminders of death can actually make people do more risky, more dangerous things. So plain packaging is a far better way of stopping smoking than putting on someone's cancerous mouth. 
Yeah, or, yeah, that's right, plain packaging or trying to target, again, that self-esteem idea to, to make people think it's not cool to smoke or trying to make people think of other things like relationships, other things that they value rather than trying to scare them with their mortality. One of the other nice things I loved about this book was the way in which both Ross and Rachel drew in the thoughts of how other writers uh, have written about death. And one doesn't have to go very far into Shakespeare, of course, to see that theme emerging. Uh, Dickens, uh, the neurologist Oliver Sacks. What are they all saying? Uh, Ross, they're, they're teasing <coughs> with it, they're teaching us about it. Uh, what do you think of them? Yeah, we, we tour uh, literature quite widely uh, in the book, and each of those authors that you've mentioned ha had valuable things to say. Oliver, For Oliver Sacks, in his book Near the End of His Life, Gratitude, he talks about uh, being loved and loving, and the, we dedicate a lot of space to attachment, that deepening your attachments is a powerful way of actually assuaging your dread of death, knowing that you were loved and knowing that you loved in your, in your time here. Uh, Dickens... Uh, in my view, produced one of the greatest uh, short pieces on, on uh, the dread of death and how to solve it in A Christmas Carol. A uh, Christmas Carol is a masterwork. Uh, if, if, to remind you of the story, we've got Ebenezer Scrooge, uh, who's miserly, mean-spirited, uh, rejects family, uh, keeps the money to himself. He's visited by three ghosts a ghost of Christmas past that shows him a better life that he had as a youth to try to influence him. Uh, he goes back to sleep after that one. It did nothing <laughs> for him at all. The ghost of Christmas present that shows him what people think of him. Again, he's unmoved. And then the ghost of Christmas future uh, who simply shows him his dead body and a tombstone, nothing more. Now, if you think about it, that ghost was revealing basically nothing. It's not that the ghost showed him terrible things that were going to happen in his workplace in a month or in three months. Just showed him what he knew already, you would think. You're going to die, Ebenezer. You'll be lying on a slab and there will be a tombstone. Dickens knew the transformation of accepting death. And our book has a lot to do with death acceptance. And so we see this character completely reinvent himself after being confronted with his dead body and finally having to realise, I will just die. Uh, he becomes, you know, overnight a generous man. He gives money to the poor house. He sends the, the largest turkey to his nephew's house. He visits family. Uh, fantastic work. Shakespeare, we could talk all day about Shakespeare and death. Shakespeare was... Uh, a lot of people argue uh, that the plays are very much narrative therapy, that Shakespeare is trying to deal with his own fears of death. Half the plays have soliloquies related to death. Uh, the great soliloquies, the to be or not to be soliloquy, for example. Hamlet was written uh, within a year of the death of his son, Hamnet, uh, and, and very much is a death work. Um, and he grapples with many attempted solutions. The one I find most interesting in some of his sonnets is uh, writing is his solution. Uh, writing and remembering the beauty of a woman in one of the sonnets. Now um, he's remembered as the writer and she's remembered because she's described. And I think he was seeking immortality in his works. So they've, they've taught us many things. 
As I say, this book is a marvellous weaving through uh, the poets, the writers, the philosophers. Frederick Nietzsche comes into the realm as well. Do you want to say much about Frederick Nietzsche, Rachel? Yeah, so Nietzsche has a few ideas that are quite relevant to this topic. Uh, when, when Nietzsche famously declared God is dead, he, he was talking about this idea that there is no inherent meaning to life, that life is inherently meaningless, that there is not one true, correct set of values or morals um, that we live by, that this is something that we create as a society and as a culture. And so if life is inherently meaningless, then the goal, Nietzsche argues, for all of us is to try and live authentically to find our own system of values that we feel are authentically ours and to commit to a life in which we live by those values. And touching back on the idea of terror management theory, we talked already about how terror management theory suggests that most of us try and grapple with death by doing what our culture tells us to do, not necessarily what we authentically actually want to do, that we will, um, you know, overwork ourselves, we will spend money on things that perhaps we don't really truly care about, we'll buy the nice white picket fence house, raise a family, do things that our culture tells us are what you do as a human being if you want to be regarded well. And so Nietzsche talks about really doing the opposite, that in Nietzsche's view the goal of, of one sort of superior goal of being human is to become Ubermensch, which is this idea of being beyond human, which he puts as the ultimate goal for all of us, which is to define our own values and live in this more authentic way. And one idea that he brings up in this, in this topic is a thought experiment where he asks you to imagine, let's imagine you go home tonight after a lovely day at the festival, you go to sleep, you wake up in the middle of the night and there's a demon standing above your bed and the demon tells you that from this moment, you're going to be condemned to repeat your entire life again over and over and over, that you're going to go back to the moment of your birth and relive every single moment up to this moment when you're lying in bed, and you're going to be condemned to this eternal return, to replay your entire life over and over and over. And he wants you to think about how would you feel upon learning this news? Would you feel overjoyed that you get to relive all the fantastic moments of your life from scratch or would you feel disturbed and distressed and be horrified by the life you're going to have to relive and he is trying to motivate you to think about how are you living are you living the kind of life that you would be happy to repeat and if not why not change it if not now when mm. so to really think about what are we doing in life? Is this really truly my authentic values? Uh, and if not, can I start to live a little bit differently? Now, we're going to come back to that theme before we finish because, indeed, that's a very good summary of the way in which the book presents this entire topic, that the important thing is not so much to crave for a life hereafter but to live an authentic life now. So we'll hold that thought and we'll certainly return to it. But I want to go to something which I found quite fascinating, Ross, uh, in your describing the ways in which over the eons of history and up to the present, um, the craving for immortality has done in terms of some of our rather more weird practices. Um, brain emulation, embalming, uh, cryogenics, 
there's been some pretty weird things happening out there. Can you tell us about those? Yeah, uh, there, there certainly have been, and it, and it shows the desperate need for people to want to cheat death. I mean, cryogenics, the idea of freezing the head uh, and that you'll come back is, uh, frankly, nonsense. Um, there's no nice way of saying it. Um, no, be, be unkind. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, the moment you put the, the cryopreservatives into, the, into a brain, you are destroying every neuronal connection. So even if the brain could uh, come back, you would come back um, uh, basically with nothing, uh, no memory, no anything. You'd be a confused mess. In fact, most of your functions wouldn't function. Um, but the fact that people wish to do it tells us a lot. And the brain emulation area uh, is a bit of a fringe area, but there are people uh, working actively to try to get us to the point where we could copy the brain uh, and copy your brain with your memories and download this in within mainstream neurology and information technology and so on. It's seen as a bit kooky and something that will never occur. And there's many reasons why it will never occur, uh, not just to do with the complexity of the brain, but to do with the ever-changing nature of the brain. You know, you, you may not know that neuronal connections are constantly in flux and moving, uh, and there's also the interaction uh, with molecules from body to brain. It, this is not something that um, is a simple matter. But it shows our desperate desire to continue. We, we love the idea. I, I mean, if people were honest, probably a large slab of the audience would think it's a pretty cool idea that they could just wake up tomorrow, someone has to tell you you're not actually here, you feel like you're here, you're a computer simulation, you know, you died in the night, but don't worry, uh, we've, we've got you on the computer and we can talk all day and take you on holidays. Um, that's what, that's what these, these guys and gals are after that are researching that area. That's what they're hoping to do. Uh, you may have seen the Netflix series Upload that came out a couple of years ago that was very much on this idea, could we upload a consciousness? The fact that people pursue all of this stuff mm. uh, says how much we just can't cope with the idea that I go to dust. Now, one of the things that we're far more familiar with, but we would put, or you certainly put into the same category, is procreation. Yeah. Now, I want you to comment on procreation and the desire for procreation but you also spent a lot of time in the book talking about what that's doing for the planet. Yeah. Um, you know, until very recently, uh, the rate of population growth uh, was very modest. Uh, we refer to the doubling rate. How long does it take the human population to double? Across most of our history, it's been about one and a half thousand years. Every one and a half thousand years, the human population has doubled. It's got down to about 40 years recently. It's a disaster. Uh, we took the better part of 300,000 years to get to a billion people. We had a billion people every 11 years. Uh, in 1992, the Union of Concerned Scientists that had 100 Nobel laureates published a document, sent it to world leaders, saying that the current population can't be supported, the finite resources of the planet will run out, and there was a desperate need to limit the population at that point. Uh, what have we done with that? Uh, we added 44%. We've added 44% to the world's population since that declaration in 1992 that we simply can't 
support the current population. The urge to have children is not just a sexual urge. We can obviously prevent having children now. The period of greatest growth is from 1961 on, and that's the period of the introduction of the contraceptive pill. So it's not that we can't stop having children. We desire them, and, and we want to keep producing children. And I think for the parents uh, out there, and I'm, I'm uh, a father of too many, um, uh, There's one of them next to you, right? Yeah, now. one of them next to me. Yeah, she's she's, uh, she's nervous. Yeah, I, I think I think parents intuitively know. We talk about the research in the book, in death priming studies, where we remind people of death. Those subtle reminders. If we later say, "How many children do you want?" They they uh, increase the count by 1.1 on average compared to a group that weren't reminded of death. People not reminded of death on average, will have 1.1 less children when they're asked how many do they want. And they have a lower urge for children. Reminders of death lead you to want to reproduce and pass on your DNA. But, you know, the science shows it, but I think most people know it. I think the parents out there surely would admit you didn't have your children for your children. You know, it wasn't an altruistic act. I, I didn't do it for you, Rachel. <laughs> I, I, I'm I, happy to be here, nonetheless. Yeah, that's, that's, right, that's right. We're happy here you know, as well. We, we, we do it for the self. We have children because it feels good to the self and we do it in the face of the disasters that are, that are happening around us. And we hope someone else chooses not to. You know, we hope somebody gets this whole thing in order, but um, we, might have an, we might have another one. Um, so, uh, yes, the, the death dread... Uh, the desperate desire to live on and to continue uh, to continue on is is one method of that is having children because you literally pass on fifty percent of your of your DNA and we we love seeing ourselves in a child's face. I, I remember uh, this happened with you actually. Uh, you you won't remember this. I don't this. know what this story <laughs> um, is. <laughs> but uh, uh, at one point, uh, fairly early on, when you were when you were a baby. Uh, we were looking at photos and a friend of the family said, um, oh, there's a strong resemblance to her, her mother and the mother's family line. And uh, I just couldn't let it go. <laughs> I, I, I went and got... I went left the room at one point, got photos and came back and said, just have a look at my mother at around the same age. And the friend just looked like, OK, OK. Sensitive issue here because... We want to see ourselves. We want to see ourselves. One more piece of research that you might find interesting. Um, researchers in China looked at people in hospital who were there for fairly routine surgery or people in hospital uh, who were there with terminal illnesses. And they compared these groups on who they wanted to see. Who did they want to visit them? They got them to list everyone uh, and then rate them for how much they wanted to see them. The single difference, the terminally ill wanted the youngest member in their family tree. So they had a preference for the great-grandchild who was only six weeks of age. That's the person they wanted to see, uh, not the person closest to them. They wanted to see the furthest extension of their genetics, the person who would be here the longest when they were gone. So it's indisputable that this uh, uh, dread of death is driving us to these crazy population numbers that is killing the planet. 
Can you all write to the Writers' Week organisers and have more panels with parents and children <laughs> on the same panel? I'm going to leave that particular topic, uh, Rachel, and come back to that earlier discussion we were having about Nietzsche and ask you to go a little further into this idea of the authentic life. Here is what your call, right near the end of the book, is as kind of takeaway. You write, quote, accept your mortality, enjoy each moment that you have, and learn to embrace the reaper. He isn't grim, but comes to give you rest and to make room for another. Now, that's pretty profound. Can you expand on that? Sure. <laughs> well, I guess this is the big takeaway we hope people get from the book, is that death is not inherently bad, that there are real positives that come out of accepting, and not just accepting, but also embracing death. And one of those is that death, in many ways, makes life a lot more precious and a lot more meaningful. And so to live a life in full awareness of death can actually help us live the kind of life we want to lead. There was a, a Lancet commission that just came out a couple of weeks ago. It was the Lancet Commission on Death and Dying. And this commission wrote about how we spend far too much time focusing on the negatives of death and trying to prolong and extend people's life. So this commission found that on average, we spend 10% of the annual public health budget on the 1% of the population who are dying. So we're desperately trying to extend people's lives rather than actually trying to see death as natural and in some cases positive. One positive that comes out of death is that it does make room for the next generation. So we, we mentioned that in the quote, to make room for the next. I wouldn't be here if not for the 107 billion people who had died before me. None of us would be here if not for them because their death has enabled the room on the planet for us to live. Uh, and so by dying, we do make room for the next generation. Uh, and as we also touch on in that quote, the Reaper offers rest, that often the people who are most anxious about death tend to be younger people, uh, people around my age, because when you're young and you're in the prime of your physical health, full of vigour and vitality, at least most days, the idea of death seems horrifying because you can't imagine wanting to leave this, this life behind. Interestingly, as people get older, they tend to become more and more comfortable with death, less and less fearful of it. Uh, and it's not a coincidence that you see on tombstones things like, finally at rest, finally at peace, rest in peace. So as a culture, I think we really need to start looking at death, not always through this negative lens, but also seeing it as something that um, does close off, naturally close off the end of, of a life worth lived, well lived, and does make room for the next generation to come, particularly given, as we've talked about, uh, how finite the planet's resources are. And even our terminology, you talk about not saying the word dead or died. Uh, we have passed away. We have, mm. They've just passed. Mm. What would you say about that? I think it's a great example of, of death denial. We'll say, um, I've lost someone. I'm sorry for your loss, as though you've just misplaced your wallet. <laughs> um, and, you know, some people might prefer that term if it's someone, you know, if they're the one grieving, some people might prefer that. But often people don't like it because it, it's really trivialising something for them. And we see this in the medical profession as well, that often doctors or, or 
healthcare professionals will use, will use these terms. They'll shy away from really being clear and specific about someone's diagnosis or someone's prognosis. And we know from studies, again, that the death anxiety of health professionals predicts how they handle those conversations, that doctors or medical professionals who score high on measures of death anxiety will be less likely to discuss end-of-life options, will be less likely to talk about advanced care directives and those sorts of things. So it's, it's not just an abstract philosophical issue. These are, this denial of death has real implications, not just for how we live, but also how we die. Ross, I'm going to bring you into that same uh, discussion with a quote of yours earlier in the book. You write, quote, only a life that faces the truth of the finality of death allows an individual to live without existential anxiety, freeing them to pursue a passionate, authentic existence in the limited time that they have. Now, Rachel's introduced us that idea. How do you want to extend that? Yeah, I, this is what the existentialists were, were really writing about, and I think they are very on point, that uh, you get to choose and define the self, and through every action you take, you will define the self, so choose carefully. Jean-Paul Sartre uh, very much emphasised that, that the choices of your life are defining you. Uh, you're condemned to be free, Sartre said. Uh, it, it doesn't sound right, does it? What does it mean, condemned to be free? What he's saying is, with each choice you make, each road you go down, you're cutting off other roads, uh, and, and you get one go at this. Rachel reminded us of Nietzsche's eternal return. You want it to be one life lived that you're very, very content with. Uh, Sartre and the existentialists warned us against conformity, against just living the way your culture takes you. It's safe, uh, because if things don't work out, uh, well, you lived you lived as you were told to. Jared Cooperus, the American philosopher, gives the example of, uh, say, an 18-year-old with the decision to go to university. An 18-year-old might say, well, I'm going to university, everyone expects me to go to university, that's the next thing to be done, uh, and then I'm going to couple, and then I'm going to get a job. It's safe, but it mightn't be authentic. You know, yesterday, Rachel and I were talking, talking to someone here who was complaining about a five-day week, was saying, I don't know why I do it. I don't like it. I don't like working a 35-hour, five-day week. And I see other people that don't necessarily do it, and I like what they're doing. Uh, but the pull of your culture toward living the way it tells you is very strong, mm. you know, because it's telling that person 35-hour weeks are what a, a, a full-time worker does. And then you can buy the shiny things that will make your self-esteem improve and you'll flog yourself and then you'll die. Um, so we're, we're asking you to face the fact that it ends, that you're a mortal ape and, and you will die. And we say late in the book, you will die and you will not be remembered. We ask people to face that because very, very few of us are Shakespeare, right? And, and very few people are remembered for very long at all. That's the harsh truth of this. I mean, Khufu that built the Great Pyramid, okay, he's still remembered, but jeepers, he went to a lot of trouble. <laughs> uh, you know, that's, not many of us are going to do that and not many of us are going to paint the Sistine Chapel. I mean, that, Michelangelo spent 10 years, a decade of his life in that room. Now, I'm glad he did because it's lovely to look at. 
but that's one heck of an immortality project, right? Yes, that'll be looked at forever. But most of us have to face, we're a mortal ape, we will not be remembered, live authentically, live a life that you would be very happy to repeat. That's one of the great pleas of the book. We have 15 minutes to go, and I love to have sessions where questions are encouraged. So I'm going to ask one more question of Rachel, but if you'd like to ask a question, Alira is there by the microphone, waving her arms. Uh, if you'd move into that position, I'll uh, get a question to, uh, to Rachel now, and then we'll go to questions from the audience. So please go and introduce yourself to Alira. So Rachel, this last question I have for you is about the Stoics. Now we talk about people who are Stoics and Stoicism, they were teaching their followers how to accept, uh, I should say, before they were pushed aside by the onset of Christianity, um, how to accept life and live an authentic life and believe in life before death. Should we resurrect, if I can use that word, the work of the Stoics to help us deal with this existential angst? So for those of you who aren't too familiar with Stoicism, Stoicism was a school of philosophy that emerged in ancient Greece and ancient Rome. And the Stoics wrote a lot about death because they were living in such turbulent times. So at the time the Stoics were writing, only 50% of children made it to the age of 10, uh, and the average life expectancy was only around 20. So death was around every corner, and given it was also politically a very turbulent time when at any minute, if an emperor didn't like you or didn't like what you had to say, they could order you to suicide, and this did happen to some of the most prominent Stoic philosophers. So they were kind of forced into this acceptance of death given the time they were living in. And the central teaching of Stoicism, they said that there is one secret to a happy life, and if you can master this one secret, it's impossible to ever be unhappy. And they said that the secret was recognising what's within our control and what's outside of our circle of control. And if we can only care about the things that are within our circle of complete control, it's impossible to ever be unhappy. The minute we start to care about something that is outside of our complete control, we're destined to feel anxious or sad or angry or distressed. And death is a classic example of this because death is completely outside of our control in almost every way. We can't control when we die, how we die, who we die with, I could drop dead right now on this stage. Um, so we can't control most of death. And the only things we can really control are things like, okay, do I make a will? Do I make an advanced care directive? Do I ask people to, to speak at my funeral? What do I ask them to talk about? Mm. Whether or not they say it, who knows? <laughs> they, could, they could say horrible things and I can't control that either. So there's no use to me worrying about that. So the Stoics wrote about accepting what we can't control and touching back on your earlier point, about the importance of recognising that we won't be remembered um, and that that's not a bad thing, that's not a tragedy. Because again, the fact that I won't be remembered means that the world is almost my oyster. I can, I can really do whatever I think is fun and useful and interesting because I'm going to die, we're all going to die. I could stuff up this whole interview today and no one's going to remember it no, <laughs> in will. for all eternity. They will. Don't worry. <laughs> You're all going to die, so it's fine. <laughs> Um, so they talk a lot about that and um, Isabel Allende has a, a great quote about this where she was interviewed and the interviewer asked, you know, how do you think you'll be remembered? And Isabel laughed and said, I'm not going to be remembered. 
And the interviewer is shocked and says, of course you'll be remembered. You know, your work will be remembered. And Isabel laughed and said, I won't be remembered. My work won't be remembered. Very few people are remembered. And it's a male fantasy, this whole thing about legacy and being remembered. And I think there's a lot of truth to that. And recognising none of us are going to be remembered is actually quite a liberating idea if you can grapple with it. OK, we have questions. We have an extremely healthy line of questioners with exactly about 12 minutes to go. So if I can get you to speak clearly for those people watching and listening from around the state and various institutions and keep your questions very, very short. Away you go, sir. Uh, thank you for the session. Uh, after struggling with the question of choosing the time when to go, I joined the, uh, the group Exile, uh, run by the Australian doctor in Amsterdam. Uh, what, do you, what do you think about that group or similar groups and their message? Yep. And the second thing is, what is the state of legislation for voluntary suicide in South Australia, if you can? Thank you. The, the second part, I think we'll have to pass on. We don't know the state of legislation in South Australia. Uh, uh, it, has, it has been passed, but hasn't yet been enacted in right. terms of its processes. Yes. Okay. That's the assisted suicide legislation. Yeah. yeah. Um, in mortals, and I, 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 we're fairly clear that uh, people should have the right to die as they wish. In fact, we have a, a section on suicide itself, not just suicide in relation to terminal illness, but suicide itself that is portrayed as universally tragic and we sort of take that to task. Why? Why do we see it that way if a person chooses not to be here? Uh, there are, and again, we're arguing we see it that way because of our own dread of death and our own fear of death, that as a community we will do anything to pr prolong life and we prolong life in people that are in terrible circumstances, you know, shocking circumstances, and we just continue. And we medicalise death. We, these people are dying in places they wouldn't wish to die. Mm. Over 70% of Australians wish to die in their home. I think the figure is about 14% achieve it. Uh, the vast majority will not get to die in Australia where they wish uh, because medicine takes over and medicine sees death as the enemy. Uh, you know, it's a failure, uh, which is a crazy way to view death. It's a universal. How is it a failure? Next question, please. Thank you. Thank, thank you for the very stimulating talk. Um, I haven't read your book yet. You might have covered it. But I wondered if you could say something about the difference between Eastern philosophies that talk about reincarnation, although at their deeper levels, they don't. You know, there's another level beyond that. Um, compared with the religions from Middle East, Judeo-Christian, Islam, that have heaven and hell. Yeah, so we, we do have a, a chapter in Mortals which covers all of the, the big religions, both ancient and modern. And all of those religions offer immortality in one way or another. So for some religions, that's uh, in this reincarnation, being physically reborn into a different form. Um, although even with those religions, the ultimate goal isn't to keep being reborn, but to actually escape that cycle entirely and achieve just an immortality of the soul. Uh, so the exact kind of picture of what the immortality looks like varies across the different religions, whether you're reborn into a different form, whether you're uh, brought back in a heaven or an afterlife, whether that's a Christian heaven or whether that's a, um, a paradise in Islam. Um, 
they all have some version of that, even if the exact form is slightly different. So we do give a fair bit of time to each of the main religions. And, and oh, I'll keep my answer brief as well <laughs> for the questions. Yeah, let's go to the next question. But yes, you'll find a very, very um, comprehensive discussion of that very topic in the book. Yes. Next question, please. Uh, thank you. Um, <clears throat> I love the fact that you say you will die and you will not be remembered. Um, I think that often um, we just have this obsession with legacy and mm. every time anybody dies in the public eye, they're always a hero, which mm. irritates me immensely, <laughs> um, which kind of implies this sense of legacy. Mm. Um, I'll just say a couple of things. People with no children... Um, the exercise obsession, um, you know, Jane Fonda or whatever, whether that's a kind of death denial, I don't know, you know, that's open to interpretation. Um, oh, let's, let's, let's and, get... Let's sorry, get a one, just okay. one more thing. Um, my, my brother's actually a signed-up member of the Cryonics Institute in the US, um, which I find quite weird, but um, your assumption that um, that's an evidence of death denial could be challenged. There may be other reasons. I don't know. Ross, do you want to pick up I, yeah, on any can, of those themes yeah, very briefly? Yeah, just, just quickly. The exercise obsession, I agree completely. In death priming studies, if you remind people of death, uh, they'll report that they've exercised more recently. Now, <laughs> you know, which is an extraordinary uh, uh, thing. So, and I agree with you completely on legacy. Um, the the cryonics, all, all I would say is that uh, somebody paying large sums of money uh, to be frozen, to come back, looks like they've got issues with death to me. Every time I look at the line, it gets longer. So we're going to keep going with these short questions. Thank you. Hello. Mine's similar to the first question. But just before I get there, um, I just want to say there's a distinction between voluntary assisted dying and voluntary suicide. Yeah. And what we've had passed here is about voluntary assisted dying for people who are already being diagnosed as dying. Yeah, True. Um, do you think there's any merit in people in the absence of illness being able to have assisted suicide so they can die peacefully, um, particularly in terms of, you know, we're looking at, um, you know, the destruction of our planet, like the climate crisis and in potential wars and things like that. So there's... People have a way out that way. Is there any merit in that? Rachel, assisted suicide. I, I think there's a lot of merit in that. I think we, just as we've encouraged people to choose how they want to live, we would encourage people to also have a say in, in how they die. And we've, we've, I think we've touched on that question already by talking about the over-medicalisation of, of people who choose to take that, that method. Um, and we think people should have a right. Thank you for the question. Next question, please. Um, thank you very much for a very interesting talk. Um, are there any cultures or societies today that have a really positive attitude towards death that we can learn from? I think it's a great question. I think a lot of cultures do, particularly Central and South American cultures seem to be quite good at this. There's the famous Day of the Dead in Mexico, but there are many similar festivals in that part of the world where they will actively celebrate death, um, they will go to cemeteries. Uh, in Europe as well, you'll see this. People will picnic in cemeteries. It's very different to what we would do here in Australia. Uh, so I think we have a lot we can learn from other cultures that do make death much more front and centre in their life. Thank you. Next question, please. Uh, you said that um, 
The urge to procreate is causing a lot of overpopulation, but in many countries, the fertility rate has actually crashed. Um, obviously, in the China, one child policy, but also Japan, South Korea, even like Russia, maybe one of the reasons why they're on the attack, why they still can with their population. So, Australia, we need immigration to maintain a population. So, how do, how do you reconcile that? It's a good question. There, there is a lot of complexity in population numbers, but the World Health Organization estimates that we'll get to at least 11 billion before that turns around. Uh, we're not quite at eight. So, we're still on the rise globally. We will continue to rise for some time. Uh, before that will turn around. But I can see there are places that are not growing. Next question, please. Oh, hi. Uh, my question is related to one of the previous questions regarding your consideration of Eastern philosophy, particularly, say, Vedantic philosophy of India, where uh, it is defined or it's understood the, who we are, the self, is and the body. Body dies, but not the self. Mm. Have you considered that concept, how it helps in facing death? Well, I think it helps in a similar way to the way that most religious belief helps, that there's, an, there's a belief in an eternal soul um, that is going to last on beyond the death of the physical body. So I think it's that same idea of, of literal immortality that offers some benefits to people, but then again comes at a cost when people feel that they have to live in a certain way in order to to ensure that immortality. It's not necessarily a kind of surefire deal. Thank you. Next question, please. Uh, yeah, my question concerns the, uh, the issue of collective annihilation, um, which arguably, without wanting to be hysterical or overly morbid, has become more relevant in recent weeks with Putin's uh, veiled threats of using tactical nuclear weapons. Uh, that's the most obvious way we might be collectively annihilated. Do you have... and I'm, I'm particularly thinking of the individual um, who, on the one hand, might take solace from the fact that we're all going up together, if that were to happen. On the other hand, be horrified to be witnessing the end of humankind. Do you have any comments about collective annihilation? I, I think the, the most relevant psychological, sociological sort of concept there is uh, nationalism. And nationalism, we talk about the desire to be a part of something that uh, exists before you and after you is part of the way we get this uh, symbolic or literal, uh, symbolic or virtual immortality. So humans overly associating with their nation state and the aspirations of their nation is a very big contributor to conflicts and, and yes, could bring about our annihilation. Again, driven by their own fear of death and wanting to be a part of this bigger thing that was here before and after. Thank you, Ross. We're down to our last 60 seconds. What I'm going to do is get to the last two questioners just to ask their questions one after the other, and then Ross and Rachel might pick one of them just to respond in the time we have left. So let me take your question and the woman behind you as well. Sure. Um, as somebody who presides at funerals, I'm constantly frustrated at the fact that um, people are often very dishonest in the face of death in talking about the one who died. <laughs> Your comments. I'll, I'll take that as a comment. Uh, <laughs> and let's have the last question, then I'll go to uh, Rachel or Ross to look at either of those issues. Where you go. Uh, first of all, um, uh, thank you very much for the very insightful session, especially I never thought I came here to listen to death, even the word, the language, 
from 28 years old, wonderful uh, um, uh, Rachel. So thank you very much. And now my question, um, uh, my sister-in-law lost uh, her daughter um, end of um, 2021, and she's only 17. Mm -hmm. So uh, your book I haven't read, and I'm going to read, and I'm going to recommend her to read as well. But the, um, her death shaped her you know, um, attitude towards society and family and all that. And she's still uh, going through that, you know, uh, very tough time. And what is your viewpoint on young death in Australia, if you can, to any advice to parents, those parents, you know, yeah. uh, those who lost their, you know, teenagers and 20 very young kids. Okay, thank let, you very let me, much. Thank you very much. Let me deal with this this way in the 30 seconds we have left. Advice, maybe, Ross, in relation to advice to people who lose okay. young ones, and then Rachel... Um, comments on funerals. Okay, uh, quickly, the problem with young death is that we feel robbed. We feel that it's not the it shouldn't happen. We're supposed to have our our seventy years, eighty years, ninety years. That's the problem. The assumption that a life should be that long, and that if it's bookended by joy from ch childhood, uh, many many ancient writers have talked about why is that a bad life? A life that was joyful but short. Rachel, the importance of honesty in funerals. Well, I, I agree with your point. This is something we all do. Someone dies and suddenly they're, they're modern Mother Teresa. Um, and I don't know. I, that being said, I don't be, imagine be careful, I would. Be careful, Rachel. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> honesty is not always good. <laughs> yeah, I can't, also can't say that I would go to a funeral and start savaging the person in my eulogy for them. So <laughs> I'm not sure. Ladies and gentlemen, I never thought I'd enjoy a topic of death uh, in, a, in a writer's week. I've enjoyed this one. Please thank Rachel and Ross Menzies. Thank you.